before I dive into this message, thank you. Hmm. Got two questions for you. The first one is, do you know him as good? Do you know him as good? You think about it. Do you know him as being good to you? Has he came through for you? Has he came through for you? Do you really know him as good? And the second question I want to ask you is, do you know him as father? Has he provided for you? Has he set you free from some things? Has he spoke a word in a season where you needed it the most? Have he touched your spirit in places that man could never do? Do you know him as the one healing you from the brokenness that the world brings and the weight that it gives you to carry? Do you know him? Do you really know him? Hallelujah. Holy Spirit, help me preach this thing. Put a fire on my tongue. Baptize your people in the spirit. Give us a hunger and a thirst for you. I'm beginning to understand why When the disciples met Jesus, why they would give up their whole profession to follow him. And when they came into contact with him, he hadn't did a miracle yet. But it was something about his presence. It was something on his life that made you know there's something different. It's not like a regular textbook that you read. It hits your mind. It hits your heart. It hits your soul. It hits your spirit. It makes you want to change. It makes you seek after him with all of your heart and all of your soul. It makes you want to say, who am I? Who did you make me to be? So, Father, <clears throat> as you have designed me as your vessel, Father, allow your Holy Spirit to speak through me as I feed your children. We thank you for your word that is life-changing for us. And, Father, help us, Father, to store it up, Father, in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
It's been a while. I miss y'all. <laughs> it's been a while. I miss you. I did. Had a great time with the women yesterday. We had breakfast together. Yes, we needed that. Yes, it was refreshing. But I promise not to disappoint you today. Amen. Hallelujah. <clears throat> so, as humanity, we are inserted into time and into space. And we are introduced to a God that is known by his word. So how does he introduce himself as the word? Well, John 1 and 1 tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he says, and the word was God. And then in Genesis, in the beginning, it says what? That God did what? He spoke into existence. Now, this is not a part of the message, but we'll come back to the message. Let's talk about existence. Because if, the, if he spoke into existence, we need to know what that is. Amen? So, existence is four things. The Bible says that God spoke into existence. Number one, existence is the spirit realm. Number two, existence is where the place of truth lives and abides. The spirit realm and the place where truth abides, okay, so we're talking about existence. So it's also the place where wisdom lives. So, if he spoke it into existence, he spoke into the spirit realm, and he pulled from the spirit realm what was already there, and it manifested in this realm. Now, the fourth thing that existence is, or we can say is not, is a place where man's opinion is not there. His ability to reason, his political agenda, all of that is not there. <clears throat> so when we're talking about that God spoke into existence, how did he do that? How did he do that? He spoke into existence with his words. He did it with his words. He did it by the stewardship of his words. Now, let's deal with the word stewardship. Now, before we always dive deep into the message, we always have to lay a foundation. And so let's deal with stewardship. We're going to look at the world's view of what stewardship is. And then we're going to look at the biblical view of what stewardship is. And the reason why we have to do that is because we came out of the world. 
and we're still being transformed into the image of his son. But we are not there yet, but it's a process. And so since that happened, we have what we called world views. Our views are attached to our perceptions. And our perceptions are attached to our truths. And our truths are attached to our faith. So if we have the wrong view about something, we cannot have the correct faith about it. It's impossible. So that's why we're going to look at the world's view of what stewardship is. And we're going to look at the biblical view because we are on the kingdom system. Therefore, we have to look at it from a kingdom perspective. Amen? <clears throat> now, the world view of stewardship is the conducting, the supervising, the managing of something, especially the careful and the responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. That is the world's view of stewardship. Now, now let's, let's look at the biblical view of stewardship. The biblical view of stewardship is the utilizing and the management of everything the Father brings into the life of the believer in a manner that honors your Father and leaves an impact on people. So let's look at two things, what I just said. We're going to look at utilization and we're going to look at management because stewardship has two sides to it, utilization and management. First, utilization. Now, we already know that we've heard people say it's not how much money you have, but what you do with the money that's given to you. What do you actually do with the money that is given to you? Or what do you actually do with the gifts that's given to you? What do you actually do with the talents that's given to you? The Bible says that the gifts and callings of God come without repentance. So I can have a dynamic ability to sing, but I can use it for the kingdom of darkness and not for the kingdom of light. I have that choice to use the talent and the gift that God's given me according to how I see fit. So what do you do with what you have? That's utilization. <clears throat> because it's not about how much, for instance, money that you have, because remember, as children, your father owns everything. But what do you do with what he gives you? Now, management. Let's look at management. Management is the system that you have in place. This is really actually more intentional. This is on purpose. What system do you have in place for two things? The first thing, what system do you have in place in order to maintain what you already have. And then, 
management is also about the system that you have in place. We know that it helps you maintain what you already have, but is it good enough to hold the capacity if he wanted to give you more? So it's about utilization and it's about management when we talk about stewardship. Now, you have to ask yourself, am I intentionally growing in these areas, utilization and management? So stewardship, we already know, is not just about money. I need you to hear me. Hallelujah. Help me, Holy Spirit. Stewardship is not just about money. Stewardship has several different sides to it. You steward your money. You steward your health. You steward your relationships. You steward your parenting. You're stewarding your marriage. You're stewarding your mouth. You're stewarding your body. And then on top of that, because it has several different sides, but then on top of that, we can be good stewards in one area and not a good steward in another. You can be faithful over the small things, but unable to steward your emotions. You can be a great steward over your gifts, but a terrible steward over the business plans that the Father gave you to get wealth. You can be a great steward with your health and your body, but you're a terrible steward over the words that come out of your mouth. So that leads us to a question. How did our brother Jesus do this? Because he's the example, right? How did our brother Jesus do this? He stewarded the words that he spoke. Why did he do that? Because he knew that his words mattered. He stewarded the gifts that the father gave him. Why did he do that? Because the father wanted to use him. Then the men that were called to be with him and to train them, why did he do that? Because he knew he had a mission. He stewarded his childhood life to obey his parents' authority because we see Jesus in the temple at 12 and then he disappears off the scene, and then he shows back up again at age 30. What was he doing? He was steward in his childhood, because he knew if he couldn't obey at the small level, he definitely wanted to be able to obey the father at a bigger level. He stewarded the mission, and he stewarded the call upon his life. Because he knew that while he was here to train others to continue to carry the ministry, he also had a call on his life to die so that many more sons and daughters could be made. He stewarded his emotions in prayer because he knew it was going to be difficult to die to his carnality and his natural weaknesses, so he submitted himself to something that was greater than himself. He stewarded his heart 
for those who used him, those who abused him, those that threatened him, those that wanted him stoned and hung on the cross. Why did he do that? Because he knew that the kingdom belonged to them too. He is the picture of stewardship. Not just the stewardship of his life and his calling, but the other side of the coin as well, which was the fact that he allowed the word to also steward him. The word became flesh. The word manifested in the flesh. So that is what I will talk to you about today. My portion today in the stewardship series is to impart into you the lesson on stewarding the word and allowing the word to steward you. Amen. <clears throat> so without greater ado, let's dive right in. First thing, stewarding the word. We're coming from 2 Timothy 2 and 15. 2 Timothy 2 and 15. Now I'm going to read two different versions for perception's sake. And we're going to pull out some words within there so we can get a better understanding of this. Amen. Verse 15 says, The study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that need not to be ashamed, rightfully dividing the word of truth. That's what the King James Version says. The New Living Testament says, Work hard. So you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Now, the two words that we're going to look at here is the word work and the word approval. Now, when we talk about work and approval, remember, we're not talking about the world's view of approval remember we always got to stay on the biblical view of things because we're in the kingdom so we're not talking about the merit-based system that the world gives us when we talk about work and approval that you got to work so hard to get to a certain place and then you're able to move up what we are talking about today is more of a grace-based work. So we know that he doesn't mean to read your Bible rigorously to approve yourself before your father because as children we are loved and we are approved by him already. So the approval that the father is seeking are sons and daughters who have been tested and have stood the test because you were diligent in reading your word and studying it so that when the test came, guess what? You didn't have to be ashamed. <clears throat> so let's go through an example. Let's say the teacher, we're in the school system, let's say the teacher tells Maria to make sure she studies the lesson in the textbooks so that when the quiz or the test came in the class, she wouldn't feel bad about having received a bad grade from the teacher and it wouldn't grieve the teacher because she taught the lesson, but the student didn't pass the test for an approved grade. 
So as a child, as a child of God, you have already been approved to come to the school. You have already been accepted in the classroom, but you have to learn, you have to take the test, and you have to pass the test. So when it says the one who correctly explains the word of truth, what is he talking about? He means the one who correctly uses the word to pass the test that's given by the father in order for him to check your maturity and to check your growth. So the first thing, you might want to write this down. The first thing when it comes to stewarding the word, reading the word, studying the word, taking tests, and passing the test are a part of stewarding the word as children of God. Reading, studying, taking the tests, and passing the tests are a part of stewarding the word as children of God. Second thing, we're going to go to Joshua, Joshua 1 and 8. <clears throat> And it says to study this book of instructions continually. Now, you, before I go on to this, you have to understand this is God talking to Joshua. He's handing the mission over to Joshua because Moses could not get them into the promised land. So he's given Joshua instructions before he hands him the assignment. He tells him to study this, he calls it the book of instructions, continually. Well, what does continually mean? When I feel like it? No. When I got enough energy? No. On my off days? No. Okay. Right before bedtime, when I did everything I wanted to do and then I'm thinking about God? No. He said continually. He says, meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything that is written in it. And then the second, the, the one, two, three, third sentence says, only then, only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. Guess what? We've seen this scripture before. We've seen it in the New Testament. Didn't we not see this in the New? Now, we're reading a scripture in the Old Testament. But isn't this the same scripture that says, as your soul prospers, you prosper? So the same thing he told Joshua, he's telling us. So let's look at the word meditation, Okay. Because he told Joshua to meditate on it day and night. Now, I know we think we, we, we really know what the word meditation is because we feel like we're familiar with that term. We hear it all the time, especially in secular circles, when they meditate and they do yoga and they do all of these things. Or we may have a, a basic knowledge of the word meditation. 
But do we really know what meditation is? What the world has given us is that, you know, we close our eyes and we think upon a scripture. And let's say we're thinking about a scripture says, he said that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we just let that scripture run through our mind and we just keep saying, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am fearfully, I am fearfully made, Father. I'm beautiful in your sight. We're just meditating on that. But do you know that that is actually a low-level definition of meditation? That is what we call knowledge. But we need to dive deeper into understanding and dive deeper into wisdom so we actually can apply the fullness of what the word meditation means. We have a partiality of what it means, but we're not applying the fullness of it. So what is meditation? Meditation is four things. Number one, the Hebrew word for meditation is Haggai, H-A-G-A. And the first thing that it means is to utter a sound, a moan, the act of thoughtful deliberation, a thoughtful debate with the implications of speaking to oneself. So when we're meditating on the scripture and we're saying the scripture to ourselves, oh, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The purpose of the reason why you're doing that is so that you can speak into your spirit. You can speak it into your soul. You're speaking it to your mind. That's the first definition of meditation. The second one. <clears throat> the second one is to consider. To consider. Now, this is what Abraham did. The Bible says that when God gave him a promise, the Bible says he did not even consider his age. He did not even consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. But what he did do, the only thing that he did, he thought about the fact that God was able to come through on what he said he was going to do. Nothing else mattered but what God said he could do. So he rested his truth and the father's Actually, it was God for him, but he rested his assurance and his truth, and he stuck it in the ability of what God was able to do. Not the fact that he was too old, because those facts was already there before the promise came. So why would he consider something like that? He only considered what the word said that it could do. So that was the second one, consider. The third definition, now all of this is meditation, and that's why I say you got to get the fullness of something. When you get the fullness of something, then you can apply it to wisdom, and it can begin to work for you in your life. The third thing that meditation means, it means to proclaim. To proclaim. Now, proclaim means to declare something one considers important to openly make public an alignment for or against something. This was seen in John the Baptist's life 
because he was made to what? Proclaim the gospel. So when he opened up his mouth and says, the kingdom of God has come unto you. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come unto you. He was proclaiming and aligning what the word already says. He was making a public declaration of what he agreed to in the spirit. So part of meditation is proclaiming. So when we pray out loud and we say, Father, I thank you that I am healed by your stripes. I received the healing that was already paid for me, Father. I agree with heaven. You are proclaiming his word. You're meditating on it. And the last thing that meditation means, it means to mutter, mutter, M-U-T-T-E-R, to mutter. Now, to mutter means to say something low or barely audible, to talk underneath your breath. Now, I did this actually in a store. Me and my husband went to a health food store in Decatur for the first time. It's, I believe it's called Sprouts. And we were looking for sea uh, moss. <laughs> and so there was a man that came in the store, and you can tell he literally was like literally out of his mind. And he was saying all different kind of things. He probably was on drugs. Maybe he had some mental health issues. But he was saying, a, and it was very violent when he came in the store. And I'm looking, I'm like, okay, I got my eye on you. <laughs> I got my eye on you, y'all, of course, and the prophetic kicked on and all that other stuff. But I'm like, okay, I got my eye on you. But I begin to mutter underneath my breath. And I begin to say under my breath, not in here, Satan. <laughs> I begin to say the blood of Jesus is against you. No person in this store will lose their life. The blood is against you. And I just kept saying it and saying it and saying it under my breath. That brother did a 360, and he walked right up out of that store. So sometimes you're in situations where you just got to say it underneath your breath. You got to mutter it. You're in maybe in a public place, and you can't say it, but you can mutter it under your breath. That is also meditation. So number two. When it comes to stewarding the word, you might want to write this down. Meditation is a part of stewarding the word as a child of God. Meditation is a part of stewarding the word as a child of God. Now, let me give you some examples. First, let's look at Joshua. Why would God tell Joshua to meditate on the word day and night, number one? And then when did Joshua's approval come? Because if we put the two scriptures together that we just did, the one in 2 Timothy 2 and 15, and then the one that we just went over, Joshua 1 and 8, when did Joshua's approval come? If we're talking about study to show yourself approved, when did Joshua's approval come? So let's see. When God spoke to Joshua, remember, he was not a young man 
when he spoke to him at the time. Joshua had spent his entire career as Moses' assistant. And now he finds that it is his turn to lead the people, but only after God had prepared him. Joshua was prepared by faithful service in the small things. So sons and daughters are prepared for great things through the faithfulness of the small things. Is this not one of the fruits of the Spirit? Faithfulness. So there were three things that God told Joshua. He said the word had to be upon his lips. He said it shall not depart out of thy mouth. He said that it had to be in his mind, the word. That's why he told him to meditate on it day and night. And then he told him that he had to do the word, meaning that he had to observe to do according to all that is written in it. Then he said he would make his way prosperous, and then he said you would have good success. So the Father's word lived out. It's guaranteed Christian success. Not that it promises a life without problems, but it does ensure a life that's able to deal with anything because it takes full advantage of God's presence and it takes full advantage of his promises. So, number three. So what does that tell us to add to how we steward the word? Write this down. You got to keep the word on your lips. You got to keep the word in your mind. And you got to do what the word tells you to do. You got to keep it on your lips. You got to keep it on your mind. And you have to do what the word says to do. Because we're looking for success, but have you kept the word on your lips? Have you kept the word in your mind? Have you did what the word told you to do? Because the Bible says this is the mathematical equations, and then you will have success. But a lot of times we're looking for the success. We have not uttered a word out of our mouth. We have not studied the word. We have not applied the word. We have not dived deep enough in the word to even understand it in order to apply it. So how are you able to have success? We got to be real. Romans 12 and 2. <clears throat> Romans 12 and 2. It says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, what is pleasing, and the perfect will of God. So, renewing your mind. He says, don't be molded by the system that you just left as an orphan. Why would you let that system mold you 
and you're in a brand new system. Your mind need to be renewed with the system that you're in. That's like coming from an old job and trying to do what they do at the new job. Guess what? It's not going to work. So what do you need to do? You need to allow your mind to be renewed in the way in which you think. You need to open up your mind into the way the Father sees things. Allow him to give you insight on something. Allow him to give you divine intellect. Allow him to teach you, Father, I need, even need to know how to think. I don't even, even know how to think about this situation. And he says, when we renew our mind, he says, you may discern what is good, what is pleasing, and the perfect will of God. Okay, hold up. So if I don't renew my mind with the word, please don't tell me you're discerning anything. It's impossible. You cannot discern anything when he literally just said, when you renew your mind, this happens. It's a chain reaction that takes place. You can't discern anything without a renewed mind. The only thing you're discerning is that world view that you have, that you came in with as an orphan. So, why are we doing this? He says, so you can correctly interpret you can't even have a correct interpretation without a, new, a renewed mind. He says, so we can examine. So we're examining things without a new mind? I believe it's a false examination. He told us, so we can think differently. Are we causing our own selves hardship? Because we just don't want to let go the way in which we think. Then he tells us, <clears throat> we're doing all it is to know the perfect will of God. You know how many people ask, I just don't know what, my, what God's will is for my life. You know what I tell them? Have you been reading your word? Because when you read your word, it opens up for you like a vision. He begins to give you glimpses of it in dreams, in visions. And so he says, in order to know the perfect will of God, what is the perfect will of God? Well, it's his desires, the correct decisions that we need to make, what he wants, what pleases him. But guess what? We got to be a surrendered vessel for that. That's a surrendered life. So without a renewed mind, there is no way of knowing if you're making the correct decisions about something. There is no way of knowing if he wants you to do a particular thing in a particular season. There is no way of knowing what pleases him and what he wants without a renewed mind. We can't even hear him correctly without it. So to add to what we're saying Far, as far as stewarding the word, renewing your mind is a part of stewarding the word as children of God. 
You have to renew your mind. It's a must. Now, hallelujah. Help me, Holy Spirit. Let's go to Job. Job 23, 11 through 12. Hallelujah. Thank you, Holy Spirit. This is Job. Now, this is during the time where Job was just losing everything. Job began to, if we're applying what we just learned, proclaim. Job said, my foot has held his steps. Hallelujah. Thank you, Holy Spirit. His ways have I kept and have not declined, he said. Neither have I gone back from the commandments of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job begins with this declaration out of his mouth that despite what was happening to him, he said, I will still follow God and love the word. What was Job saying when he said, I have held his steps. I have kept it. I have not declined. I have not departed from his commands. He did not remove himself from the father's orders. He did not remove himself from the father's prescriptions. He did not remove himself from the father's ways. He did not remove himself from the father's orders. He did not remove himself from the father's laws. He did not remove himself from the father's instructions. He did not remove himself from any of the father's warnings. Then he turns around after all he said, he said, and I have treasured the words that came out of the father's mouth. Hmm. He said, I've treasured them. I've concealed them. I've hidden them. I've stored them up. I've kept them. I kept a record of what he said to me. Hmm. Hallelujah. <laughs> and he said, I did it more than I would for my daily food that I need. But you got to understand where he was coming from when he said it. We look at things from an American point of view. But back in those days, famines were always a thing. A famine would last for seven years. So when he said, I have stored up his word, more than my necessary food. Back in the day, wheat, barley, and millet and other grains were staple foods back in the day because they did not spoil and they kept themselves for seven years for a famine. So it was, it was very important and essential for life because a famine could happen at any time. So you had to store up food in case a famine broke out. Mm -mm -mm. Thank you, Holy Spirit. So he said, I did this more than I would to sustain my own body in case a famine broke out. So what was he saying? In case a famine broke out, I needed the word. And that's what literally had happened. A famine in his life had broke out. So he had stored up 
the word and remembered what the father said and he did not remove himself for what the father had told him to do. So what does that tell us? Abiding in the word, despite what's going on all around you, and keeping a record of what he says to you as part of stewarding the word. Don't forget what the Father has said to you. I don't care if it was a dream. I don't care if it was a prophetic word that was spoken over you. Keep the word. Remain in the word, the logos and the rhema word. Let's look at Daniel. <laughs> Daniel took the word so seriously that he didn't even care about the luxuries that the king provided. Why? Why did he do this? Because according to Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was not his God and Nebuchadnezzar was not his king. This was the whole idea why Israel was taken captive. You got to understand this thing. Israel was taken captive by Babylon because of idolatry and disobedient to Yahweh during the time they called him Yahweh. And the father says, if you would just... <laughs> choose me, I'll give you any land that you want. You'll conquer any land that you go to. It'll be yours. But they decided they wanted to worship a whole nother God. So because of that, God allowed them to be kidnapped by the Babylons. He was literally kidnapped. He was taken captive. Hmm. He was stripped of his name. He was stripped of his culture. Mm -mm -mm. And he was stripped of his God to worship another one. And so we talk about the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <clears throat> But that was not their names. That was the names that was given to them when they were kidnapped and taken captive because they stripped them of their original Israelite name. Their real names were Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And they even stripped Daniel of his name. They gave him the name of Belshazzar. And when they did that, they also began to train them according to their language, which was of the Chaldeans and their God that they worshiped. But Daniel took his spiritual life seriously. He said, wait a minute. Why would I do the same thing that got me in this place in the first place? 
The reason why we in the situation, because we decided we wanted to worship another God. So Daniel said, if I just turn this thing around and take my spiritual life serious and decide that God is my God, it'll work in my favor all around again. He knew that God was the one who was in the details of it all. He is the one who allowed it to happen because of that. So if he allowed it to happen, he could definitely turn it around because he was in control. And that's why Daniel didn't mind telling what one of the helps, look, go tell the king, we're not going to eat this food. That's why he was able to come to him so boldly and say, tell the king, we're just going to eat vegetables and fruit. And the help was like, you basically, you're trying to get us in trouble. Because when they, when they see that you losing weight, we're going to get in trouble. Daniel was like, look. If we look healthy, allow us to do it. And he said, okay. But Daniel already knew it was going to get approved because he knew who was in charge. So let's go through it if you still don't. You're not convinced. Daniel 1 says, verse 2, that the Lord, the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar along with some of the vessels from the house of God. He did that. Verse 9 says, God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Then verse 17 says, God gave the four young men knowledge and understanding and every kind of literature, wisdom, visions, and dreams. And that's why when they looked in the fire, they say, hey, we see almost like a fourth person standing in the fire. And that's why when they came out of the fire, they didn't even smell like smoke. So as our own apostle would say, taking your spiritual life serious is a part of stewarding the word. These men were serious about making God their king and walking out that concept in their life. So let's review. What are some ways to steward the word? Number one, reading and studying to pass tests to get spiritual mature approval for your inheritance. Meditating on the word, which means that the word is on your lips, running through your thoughts day and night, and obeying what you read and hear from the Father. Number three, renewing your mind so you can correctly discern the Father's will, his desires, his season, discern spirits, discern what he is saying. Number four, abiding in the word, despite what's going on around you, as well as keeping a record of what Abba says to you and taking your spiritual life seriously is all a part of stewarding the word. Now, I only have one scripture left, but we're going to thoroughly break this thing down so you can get the fullness of it. 
And we're getting ready to go to the flip side of the coin of stewarding the word, which is allowing the word now to steward you. We talked about your part of you stewarding the word and what you have to do. Now we're going to talk about how do you allow now the word to steward you. And we're coming from 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Now, if you have not been listening or paying attention, you definitely want to pay attention on this part. <laughs> 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Because this is the only scripture that I have for this section. I'm going to read the Amplified Version, and then I'm going to read the King James Version. Y'all ready? All right, let's go. And it says, all scripture. Somebody say, all scripture. All scripture. Amen. All scripture. Hold on. Just the red one? What Jesus said? Oh, just the black. Okay. Just the Old Testament. Just the New Testament. Just revelations. <laughs> Just the book of Acts. What about the Torah? Just that one. <laughs> All. Okay, so we just want to make sure we get that out there. All. All scripture is God breathes. And it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, we don't like that word. That's a spiritual cuss word. <laughs> Correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why do we need to come to church? And that's in everything that you do. I don't care if you call to a Fortune 500 company. You have to be equipped for that thing. Your mind got to be able to hold the capacity to lead. And where do you get the training from? In the house of God. Now let's read that in the King James Version. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, hmm. thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Hmm. Now, we're almost getting ready to do an activity, okay? We're almost there. But before we get into how you allow the word to steward you, once again, I like to lay a foundation before I enter into things. Because you cannot establish a house and build it without a foundation unless that when the storms of life come, you can't stand. So our foundational truth here that we must first come together in order to build this house, and this is what we already established and proclaimed, was that all Scripture, all Scripture, has your father's breath upon it. I need you to get that. All scripture has your father's breath upon it. 
no matter who he decides to use to do it. Now remember, I got to put this out there too, this is my disclaimer. Remember, we are not talking about those who abuse the word of God for their own motive and their own gain. And we are also not talking about perfect people because he would not have to die. But sons and daughters of God with weaknesses allowing him and her to lead him into all things. That's what we're talking about. So whomever, let's say whomever, Abba chooses, amen, to speak his word, we have to know once it comes out of the mouth, for example, of the apostle, it is as if God himself spoke it. And why is that? Because God's breath is upon those words. And the apostle begins to turn into a vessel submitted for use, an instrument, a weapon to equip the people of God. So, in the scripture, it also tells us that all scripture is useful. The King James Version tells us it's profitable. Now, let's look at profitable. Profitable from the simple standpoint, meaning it will yield a return for you. All of this, what we're talking about, will yield a return for you. Okay? You, I need you to get this. The correction is yielding a profit. The rebuking is yielding a profit. The teaching, it's what? Yielding a profit. Who is it yielding a profit for? For you. It ain't yielding a profit for the Father. It's yielding a profit for you. But all scripture, this is a very important part. All scripture is not only profitable for salvation, meaning that we, we kind of talked about this in the previous lessons, that there are some blessings in God that you receive just because you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I personally call these the initial blessings of Anepios. It's when you first enter into the kingdom of God and you said, I give my life over to the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm declaring him as Lord and you enter into the kingdom. These are what I call the initial blessings of Anepios. Now, to name a few of these things, so you know what I'm talking about. These things include protection, love, adoption, a family, the Holy Spirit as a down payment for you, angels that minister to you and are assigned to you, your gifts, your calling, your talents, you get a father, 
You get brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what we call profitable ability for the initial salvation process. But then we have the profitable ability of sanctification. That deals with growth and maturity with the stages of sonship that releases your inheritance. Remember, a will is read after someone dies of what they will receive from the deceased, but there are often stipulations in the will, and majority of the times it deals with the maturity of the age of the person. A trustee, a guardian, a court treasury is usually over the will until the child reaches a certain age. So this is what I call profitable ability for mature Christian growth. It is like, <laughs> I know Watchmen will appreciate this. <laughs> it is like playing the futures market for right now money. That's that initial blessings for the nepios versus investing in stock for the long-term mature growth over the years that builds wealth. So once you see profits immediately, you can use them right now. And the latter one is that you only see wealth over a period of time in your inheritance as you actually grow and mature in God. Now, now that we have established a foundation, we can now move into a more understanding on how you allow the word to steward you. Now, this is our activity. Alana, come down. I want every single person in here to raise up your iPhone, and, and if, you are, if you have an iPad as well, raise it up in the air. Raise it up. Come on, raise it up. Android, iPhone, you got any type of device with you, raise it up. Now, pay attention to the instructions. This is what I want you to do. I want you to take that device, okay, no cheating. I want you to take that device and put it in the chair in front of you. Now, if you don't have a chair in front of you, you're going to set it at your feet. Set it at your feet. Set it at your feet. Now, do not pick it up until we're done with this activity. <laughs> now, I want you to take, Alana's going to give you a, um, a card. If you don't have something to write with on a piece of paper, you don't have a pen. You're going to need a pen and something to write with for this activity. If you don't, Alana will give you a card. Now, while she continues to do this, I'm going to continue to give the instructions. Now, remember, do not pick up your device. Can we come into agreement about that? 
Amen. Now, I am going to give you four, yes, I'm going to give you four words, okay? And I want you to write down the definitions of these words according to your own knowledge, but I need you to do it from a biblical point of view, from a biblical point of view. Everybody got that? You're going to write down the definitions to the best of your knowledge. And you're going to write it down according to a biblical point of view. Everybody ready? Everybody ready? All right. Give me the next slide. So, I believe it's the next one. The words are, and you'll see them come up there as well. I'm going to give them to you. Teaching. That'll be number one. Teaching. Now remember, no devices. Number two, rebuking or the word reproof because it's the same word. The next word is correction. And the last one is training or instruction in righteousness. We're going to take about three minutes. I'll give you guys for this. Now you're writing down the definition to the best of your knowledge, but in a biblical view. And that's teaching, rebuking or reproof, it's the same word, correction, and training in regards to righteousness. to the best of your knowledge. We got two more minutes. And for those that will be listening on the podcast, follow along as well.
right. Now, we're going to go back to the lesson. And after I go over these four words with you, I want you to compare what you wrote to what these words actually mean, just so that you can see that sometimes how we think we know the definition of something, but we really don't. Sometimes we are familiar with the word being used, but we don't know the definition. Therefore, we cause ourselves frustration when we don't know what Abba is actually doing or saying. And what ends up happening is that we, have, we begin to have improper emotions about things because we lack understanding. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up. It never says that understanding puffs up. It never said that wisdom puffs up. But it said that knowledge puffs up. That's interesting. So why would knowledge puff up? Because it's only a truth that you're familiar with at the lowest level. So you think you know something, but you really don't. But if you would actually dive deeper, you would hit something that we call understanding. And once you hit understanding, you're supposed to usher yourself into wisdom to where you actually apply it. And that's why he says the world is more wiser than us. Because the church takes in information, but they don't dive deep into understanding, and neither do they go into wisdom. They take our principles, and they apply it to their life. We read the word, and we say, oh, that was a good word, and we go home, and we do nothing with it. So let's first go with, it says that the word, didn't it, let's go back to what that scripture said. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful or profitable for teaching. So let's do teaching first, because it told us it's profitable. It's going it's to get us something. So teaching. Teaching is a critical element in growth towards maturity. Now, in the same way as people are never taught to read, what? they cannot reach their full potential. If a person is never taught to read, they cannot reach their full potential. So people without teaching from the scriptures fail to develop spiritually and develop fully. Now, God's word that gives, is the thing that gives us the tools when we talk about teaching, it gives us the tools we need for everyday life. That is what teaching does, is giving you the tools you need for everyday life. You need tools for everyday life. You cannot just walk into life aimlessly without any tools. You need tools to use for everyday life. Teaching the word also equips the believer to reach their full potential. Everybody has potential, but are you reaching your full potential? So a teacher teaches students to help them reach their full potential in a subject. So 
Now, how does this look? I'm going to give you a real-life application. When the geometry teacher is teaching geometry, it's to help the student reach their full capacity in learning what? Geometry. If the teacher does not teach geometry, how would you reach your full capacity in the knowledge of geometry? You couldn't. So, I'm going to use you, Pastor Kirby. <laughs> so when Pastor Kirby is teaching about how demotion prepares you for promotion, this is to do what? Maximize your full potential in that area and to increase your maturity. So let's look at rebuking and reproof. Because it says it's going to yield us a return. Rebuking and reproof. The official cuss word of the Bible. <laughs> now, rebuking or reproof. It convinces us to behave differently when the word rebukes us. What rebuking and reproof is, is revealing areas that others or you may not see or that we prefer to ignore. Oh, I know I got a problem loving people, but I'll deal with that later. I know I got an issue with being obedient, but I'll deal with that later. So when the word comes forth, and it rebukes you, it's placing a demand on you to behave differently. Hmm. Rebuking and reproof is also when the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to reveal the truth of hidden sins in you and the foolishness of a child that's still within you. That is what rebuking and reproof will do. So a lot of times when it's come for us over the pool fit, you'll see almost like the spirit of rebellion begin to rise. Why is that? Because it's placing a demand on you to remove the foolishness, the childishness that's within you that is lying dormant and hidden inside of you. It got to come out. Hmm. Thank you, Holy Spirit. So guess what? When the teacher rebukes the child, we're going back to the school system for practical application. When the teacher rebukes the child and tells them that they were wrong for hitting another child and taking the toy away, they are revealing to the child an area they need to get better in, which is what? Sharing. The child don't like it. Majority of the times, they want to stomping in the corner. <laughs> I don't want to go. Okay. <laughs> but it's still right. Despite how you feel about it, go back and give it back to the child. <laughs> now let's look at correction the second official cuss word of the scriptures, correction. Now, what correction does, it builds upon reproof. 
And it means restoration or reformation. So while we looked at reproof, while reproof and rebuking reveals the sinfulness and the childlessness, uh, childfulness and the foolishness that's hiding in your heart, what correction does is shows us how to straighten out what we are doing wrong. And it shows us how to mature in our immature areas. So for example, going back to the school system. Now, the teacher not only tells you that you were wrong for hitting the other child and taking a toy, but now tells you to go back and apologize and give the toy back, and then tells you to sit in timeout for five minutes. This is what we call correction. Because they're showing them how to do it. Rebuke tells you you're doing this thing wrong. The correction turns around and tells you this is how you do it. So they work hand in hand, and that's why they build upon each other. Now, our last one here is training or instructions in righteousness. Now, it takes the soul transformation process even to a further level. The Greek term from which we derive the English word, pedagogo, is based on the idea of guiding a child to adulthood through the art of teaching. So an instructor cannot teach merely by correction, meaning that they're pointing out what the student is going wrong at without training the student. That's why we won't tell you to do something without actually training you in how to do it. That's like trying to drive by looking in pretty much the rearview mirror. You can't look in the rearview mirror when you're driving. So training shows the correct way to behave before a mistake is made. Training in righteousness shows you the correct way to behave before a mistake is made. So for example, going back to my school example, at the beginning of the first day of school, the teacher goes over the behavior rules she expects each child to adhere to before any problems take place in the classroom. This is what we call training in righteousness. Before any problem pop off and you talking about, well, I went to the bathroom, but I, you, you didn't raise your hand. And the teacher's like, but I gave you the instructions on what to do if you got to go to the bathroom. You need to raise your hand and let me know that you need to go. Why would the teacher do this? She's not trying to make your children's life miserable. She's training the child in the right way to do things in the classroom. She's aligning the children to the school rules, just like the apostle, the pastor, the teacher, the evangelist, the prophet had, comes in here to what? Teach the word and train you to what? To align you to what the father said, to align you to what the word says before an issue pops off. So scripture trains us to align our behavior with what our new identity, to align our minds to the mind of Christ, to align our hearts to the heart of the Father, 
to align our destiny and our purpose and how we show up there. When we represent the kingdom, we are telling the world we are the best that the Father has to offer. But do we show up that way? We're saying we're the best he has to offer, but are we showing up as the best? Are we allowing the word to train us as the best? Are our hearts showing up to be dealt with? Are our bodies showing up to learn his ways? Are our minds opening to be taught and being stretched to capacity? Are our behaviors being placed at his feet? How are you showing up for the assignment? How are you showing up for the kingdom? So this is what I want you to take away from this. Everybody stand up. This is what I want you to take away from this. First is that there are two sides of the coin. One is stewardship of the word, which requires a lot of initiation on your behalf. And then the other is allowing the word to steward you, which requires a surrendered life. All scripture has God's breath on it. So no matter who he uses to teach, no matter who he uses to rebuke, no matter who he uses to correct or train you, it is a word from heaven and not man. His breath is on his word. That teaching, rebukes, correction, and training are not, please notice, it is not condemnation. But they are ways and they are paths to maturity in Christ. In other words, it is a spiritual love language. Just like I tell each and every one of you, no matter what dream you have, it is not a bad dream. I don't care if they say, I had a nightmare. That's not a nightmare. Majority of the times, those are instructions that's coming from Abba or warnings. Why is he doing this? Because he loves you. And he desires you to stay on the path that he has for you. So these corrections and rebukes and all of these other things, these are spiritual love languages and that's how you have to take it in. Condemnation is telling the person that they are going to hell and that they are unsavable, that they are hopeless. They have placed judgment on that person without knowing their story, knowing how to help them. And that they need the things in which they need in order to get out of this situation. That is what condemnation is. It's not condemnation. If Pastor Kirby teaches that it's impossible for you to love God if you don't love people who you can see every single day right amongst you. It's not condemnation if apostle tells you to stop gossiping to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. Or he brings up the scripture, Luke 9 and 62, in which Jesus himself said that no one who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God. It is not condemnation 
when the prophet says that some of us need to stop looking for confirmation but spend more time in the secret place so that when Abba speaks you will know that it's him immediately when he speaks it's not condemnation when the watchman comes up and he gives instructions about there needs to be order in the house of God and that there are too many distractions in service and to be on time to service that is not condemnation it is not condemnation if the woman of God tells you to submit yourself to your own husband and if he tells you to do something and you don't like it to do it anyways because when you do this it is as if you are rejected a word from God yourself. You are rejecting his word directly. It is not condemnation to tell you to stop watching pornography. Stop listening to satanic music. Stop participating with people who do these things. It is not condemnation to say wait until you get married before you have sex. Not because Abba said so, but to help protect your own mind. Yes. And to protect you from the strongholds that develop when you do these things. So what will people say? Well, you're condemning me. Well, you seem to forget that as ministers of the gospel, the word says that we have to been given the task to watch for your soul. We must give an account for you. We have to stand and give an account for you. We're shining the light of the word on your soul so it can change your heart to not rebuke and to not train and to not correct you and to not teach you. It's like looking at your brother and your sister and they have something on their face and you never tell them. Don't you hate that? You spend a whole hour talking to somebody. <laughs> and they watch you walk away. They see something on your face. They see something in your hair. And they never tell you. So if a pastor, you would play with me.